Well, a couple of weeks ago, I started this service, uh, this series, by telling you uh, what a preacher's story was, and that it was different from a dad joke. And the difference is, is that preacher stories are stories that preachers wind up telling you that uh, we probably know aren't true, but we tell them to you like they're true uh, to try to teach a point. Well, today I had planned to tell you about a whole other thing that is uh, unique, I think, to people in my generation. Uh, I, I really discovered this morning it's unique to my generation. It's called Reader Digest Stories. And uh, <laughs> what got me thinking about this was uh, that it might just be our generation or people maybe a little bit older than us. As I was watching um, one of my friends this morning who's about 30, and I asked him afterwards, do you know what Reader's Digest is? And he goes, mm-mm. And the reason is, is because I thought that magazine had been buried with my mom. I thought she had the last copy in her hand when we put her in the casket, but apparently it still exists, uh, along with Saturday uh, Evening Post. Uh, who knew? And so I have a story from Reader's Digest. I doubt it's true, but I'm going to tell it as if it is. There's this woman uh, named Mary, and she submits a uh, short story to Reader's Digest about her granddaughter, Dawn. She's keeping Dawn for her uh, uh, son, and uh, when he, Dawn's over at the house, she's just a little girl. She gets herself locked in the bathroom, and she can't figure out how to get out, and she's really scared. And so Mary says, Dawn, I've got to go find a key for this. It's going to take me a minute or two, but you be calm and remember that Jesus is in there with you. And Dawn says, I know, he wants you to let him out too. <laughs> I don't think she said that, but maybe. So uh, welcome to Community Christian Church. I'm Ed, and I share that story with you for two reasons. One, number one, with the preacher story I told a couple of weeks ago, and the feedback I got from so many of you, particularly in this service, I know that's the only thing you're going to remember I said today <laughs> in this, so you're welcome. Uh, number two... We've been in this series uh, for just a little bit called Essential Church, and what I need to talk to you about today is that Jesus thinks the church is essential because Jesus needs the church to get what he's trying to do out into the world. We are his body, and he needs us to do what he's called us to do, to get what he has going on in the world to our community and to the world. In fact, Jesus said at the end of this, and we can do this with a lot of confidence that we've been singing about this morning and our trust in him, he says that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against his church. And I pointed out to you a number of weeks ago that gates are only put around a city as a defense mechanism. So Jesus is making clear to the church that the gate that hell, once he's done his part and the church is established, hell is hunkered down behind walls. The church is not hunkered down. The church is advancing, and hell is afraid that we're going to conquer it. We're knocking down the gates of hell. But Jesus not only gave that promise, at the end of his life, his disciples are standing with him after the resurrection. And in the book written by a Jesus follower named Matthew, he says these words, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus gives us his mission. The reason that he came to the earth, he now gives to the church. And the mission is, is that we go to every person we know and we make disciples of Jesus everywhere. 
Now, there's a really big assumption behind this mission that Jesus gives to us that I think we can take from it, and I want you to get really clear. One is that Jesus thinks every single person in the world needs to be his disciple. That the broken systems you see around you, that the evil that you think is rising around you, the evil that gets done in the world, the evil that uh, happens through mismanaged anger and systems that have gotten set up that tend to cause problems in our world, all of that is a result of people in our world not living as disciples of Jesus. We need to be really clear that the solution to the problems of our world is discipleship to Jesus. Now, you might think that's too broad, but Jesus thinks every single human on the planet needs to follow him. That we take and detach ourselves, that our thinking and our living needs to be attached to him as Lord. That living your life on your own, apart from Jesus, even if you believe he's the son of God, if you do not follow him with your life, Jesus said, you're lost. It's the same, he says. And that's why Jesus would consistently refer to what he had come to do as a rescue mission. Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, the Son of Man, talking about himself, came to seek and save those who were lost. That's Jesus' word. And that's his work in the world. People who live their life apart from discipleship to Jesus, who try to live their life on their own in any particular area, Jesus would say, they're, they're just lost. Now, that's a really politically incorrect world in our day. To say that anybody is lost, that they can't do life very well on their own. Jesus tells this parable at one point when he's trying to explain to some religious leaders why it is he hangs out with what they call notorious sinners. Why is it that Jesus chooses to live his life hanging around with people that are far from God? And he tells this story about a hundred sheep and a man that has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost and the man leaves the 99 behind and he goes out and finds the one. Well, why? Well, because everybody in Jesus' day would have known that a sheep that's separated from the shepherd and from the rest of the flock, that's a dead sheep. A sheep that's on its own, they can't protect themselves. That sheep is lost and dead. Now, I've always thought about that parable, and I've wondered, I wondered if the people who were listening to that, the notorious sinners, is, if they listened to that story and they thought to themselves, okay, I get that Jesus is probably the shepherd and probably the religious leaders are the 99. Is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm lost? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Everybody separated from him. Everybody doing life on their own. I mean, we're consistently compared to sheep. And a single sheep, that's a dead sheep. Sheep on their own, it's totally lost. Jesus makes clear that he's the way and that only those that follow his way will find life. Everybody else, even if it looks like they're living life high, Everybody else is headed toward death. Now, often this gets taught in churches like us, and I, I have taught it this way, and people think of it this way, that what I'm talking to you about right now is death after life. That most people tend to think in terms of that what Jesus is saying that you're lost is that 
Once you decide that Jesus is the way to life and you accept him as savior of your life, that what Jesus is saying is that once you die, you'll never really die. And let me be clear, I do believe that. I believe that Jesus, living life with Jesus, that life, if you live under his leadership, that life never ends even if your body ends. But most people think he's only talking about in terms of eternal life after death or eternal death after death. But there are people sitting in this room that if I'd let them share for a few minutes, and I say to you, did you live your marriage under the leadership of Jesus or did you do it the way you wanted to? And did you experience life or did you experience death? There are people all around you that they've experienced death more than once in a marriage. They've experienced relational death. If I said to you, have you led your money under the leadership of Jesus or did you do that the way you thought was right and you thought Jesus didn't understand and they experienced death in their finances. Other people in our church, like me, thought that you could do things with your sexuality or with your, uh, the habits that you had in your life, and they'd never be a problem. That You could handle anger the way you thought, that it just whatever felt right to you in that area would be okay. And experience death on every turn, not just afterlife. See, following Jesus leads to life, and not following Jesus leads to death at every turn. The broken systems of our world that we see around us, the broken systems are just collections of people who don't want Jesus as leadership of their collective life. And we experience the destruction of that all the time. You see it everywhere, don't you? I mean, you see it in our government, you see it in your work, you see people living as if they have the right way apart from Jesus. It's absolutely essential the followers of Jesus get really clear in our mind that Jesus thinks everybody, everybody you see in every area of their life would be significantly better if they followed him as the leader of their life. The second thing that we can note about this is that Jesus' mission is for the good of people, but it requires people to carry out his mission. Jesus definitely wants to get out. But it requires his body, us, to get him out. And I don't mean you particularly, individually. It requires us collectively. Jesus intends to redeem every single part of this world. There is not one inch on this planet that he does not say, that person and that thing, it belongs to me. And I intend to redeem it. You may not think you need the church. Jesus knows he needs the church. Jesus needs the church because the mission he gave needs his people to carry it out into the world. Jesus needs a church that will stay on mission, a church that will knock down the walls behind the walls, that will confront the evil that's going on in the world. He needs a church that will take the gospel into the world. He needs a church that will gather together so we can be empowered with each other to go out into the world. It's been 21 years since the Twin Towers fell in New York City, which means for those of you who are old like me, that there are full-grown people who can drink today who do not remember that happening. It's hard to believe, isn't it? 
It's such a defining moment for us. But there are people 21 years old that have no conscious memory of that. I've been to the site of the Twin Towers uh, three different times now, twice to uh, the original site and then once to the Freedom Towers. And the last time that I was there on the trip to the Freedom Towers, I was working with some other pastors to talk about reaching the boroughs of New York City and hearing about what God was doing there. And we took a trip up at the Freedom Towers, and I was standing with a guy who's from that part of Manhattan, and he pointed out to us as we went up that there is a chapel very uh, near there. St. Paul's Chapel is built in the early days of the United States. In fact, George Washington himself worshipped in St. Paul's Chapel when the capital of the United States was New York, which is news to some of you, so that's your history lesson for the day. <laughs> but the two years it's there, George Washington worships in this place. It's very close. It's in the same district as the Twin Towers. And on 9-11, it was one of the very few buildings in that area that had no damage. It did not have one single window broken. And so the first responders, they used it. It became their refuge. The days that they tried to dig people out, and when they became exhausted hungry and tired. St. Paul's Chapel became the place that they knew they could come to seek rest, refuge. If they got tired, if they got hungry, if they needed somebody to pray with them, to grieve with them, they'd go to that church to be restored and the church would help them get back on mission. If you wonder why we come together, we don't come together to be a crowd. We come together to encourage each other, to restore each other, because we must get back on mission. We gather together so we can go scatter. And so before we move on, I want to pause. I want to ask Jason to come and lead us and pray for our church that we would stay focused on our mission together. So Jesus gave what was his most famous sermon and he spoke to his followers and he talked to them about what kind of community he had come to establish in the world. And when he described the church, and that's you and me, he called us salt of the earth and light of the world. Now the salt of the earth was just Jesus' way of describing a, a people who would begin to draw the unique flavor of God's kingdom out into this world. See, just like salt adds to and it draws out the flavor in food, see, the church is supposed to add God's goodness into every environment, into every place that we go, into every community that we belong to. We draw it out. We bring out the kingdom. And the church, he said, is also the light of the world. See, in a world that's darkened by sin and sorrow and grief and anxiety, evil and injustice, all the things that you see, the church is God's agent to push that kingdom back, to push back the darkness. That's the mission that Jesus sent you and me out to do together as the church. So today, that's what we're going to pray for. We're going to pray that Community Christian would be a salt of the earth, light of the world kind of church. So to begin, we're going to first start by reading the words of Jesus, and we're going to do this together. So when you see the words on the screen in bold, I'm going to invite you to read those out loud with me. 
You are the, the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Now I want you to take a moment and I'm going to invite you, just pray in the silence that our church would never lose the flavor of God's kingdom. Pray that wherever we go, that our church would remain faithful and represent God's goodness and love into the world around us. Take a moment and let's do that. And now let's continue to read the words of Jesus together. You read that one's in bold. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So now in these moments of silence, I want you to pray for our church that we might stay focused on our mission to be the light of the world, that we might do good for our neighbors, for our community, that we might see the beauty of life with God, that they might see life with God through us. Take a moment. Let's do that together. Heavenly Father, renew your spirit in each of us. Fill our church with a passion to follow you and live fully in your kingdom. Help us to accomplish the mission that you gave us, to share your life with those around us. Help us be salt and help us be light. In the name of Jesus, amen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to give you a picture of what it looks like to be salt and light, of what it looks like to stand in our culture as a witness to the discipled life of Jesus. Because in our culture, it's gotten a little confusing for people that somehow the church has gotten messed up in thinking that to stand as a witness means to stand against or to vote for things. So I want to point you to my favorite church in the New Testament. It's my absolute favorite example that we have. I've referenced it several times over the last few years when I've been trying to show you the unified beauty of this church. It's a church that doesn't have a letter written to it because it's a church that sent everybody out that writes letters. It's the, it's the church I hope that we could become like. It's a church at Antioch. It's described by the writer Luke in the book of Acts. That's, you know, the book right after the gospel is written about Jesus. Let me read to you. This is going to take a little time to read. So are you ready to concentrate for a moment? Okay. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Assyria. They preached the word of God, but... Only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them. 
And large numbers of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When, they, when, the, when the church at Jerusalem heard what was happening, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived there and saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that believers were first called Christians. Then two chapters later. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Mannion, who was a childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for this special work to which I've called them. So after more fasting and praying, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Now what I want to do over the next few minutes is I, I guess you probably noticed, or maybe you didn't because my reading was so fantastic, that there are a lot of firsts that took place in this special church. It's the first place that anybody's called a Christian. I guess you picked that up. It's also the first place that people regularly cross the lines of ethnicities, and they begin to share Jesus. They actually crossed the ethnic barriers that had hemmed the gospel in, and they did what Jesus said of going to every ethnicity. It's the first church that intentionally sends people out to people they do not know to make Jesus disciples everywhere. Now, I can't prove this, but I think this is true. I think this is why Jesus chooses this church to be the one to reach the rest of the world, and it becomes a model for all the other churches we see in the New Testament. They have this unique unity that goes on between the, the diversity of ethnicities of Jews and Gentiles together. They come together from all kinds of different backgrounds, and God wants them to be the ones to model to the rest of the world what he wants to see take place. So let me end by sharing with you what I noticed about the church at Antioch. The church believed that Jesus was for absolutely everyone, everywhere. So when they left their gathering, they shared Jesus with everyone, everywhere. Let me share with you a couple of things that means for a church. Well, first, it's got to mean that a church on mission we begin to decide to live out a gospel that looks like it could save anyone so that we can share that gospel. The Christians at Antioch believed that all the people needed to become disciples of Jesus, and it says a large number of Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. You'll notice they're not teaching a philosophy. They're not saying, hey, why don't we all just get along? They're calling people to follow Jesus in their, uh, in their century, knowing that if everyone will follow Jesus, we will get along, that he will unify us. They're not just preaching some kind of ethic. They're not going into the city and say, hey, we don't really care about what you believe. Just be really good people and love your neighbor and treat people nice. 
They're not preaching this kind of philosophy ethic that says everybody's okay. They're specifically calling on people of all different kind of backgrounds to turn their lives and their hearts and surrender their whole being to Jesus as Lord. Which is why in this church, discipleship to Jesus gets freed of its Jewish culture and it becomes one that any culture can adopt. Now, because I bet... Well, at least I don't know of anyone in this room that's Jewish ethnically. And because most of us have never been in a church where there's anybody who's Jewish ethically, ethnically, we tend to think that all followers of Jesus, all time, were all Gentiles. But you need to realize until this point, because Jesus was a Jew and all the disciples were Jews, that until this point, everybody thought that the only way you could follow Jesus was to become a Jew first. That if you were going to follow Jesus, you had to follow Moses. And to follow Moses, for some grown-up men, that required a surgery. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask somebody what circumcision means. But in Antioch, they took all of that away. They just said to everybody all, everywhere, all you need to do is follow Jesus. And breaking down those ethnic barriers, it caused people back in the mother church in Jerusalem to become really concerned. So they send their spy Barnabas up. Because Barnabas has got to check it out. And when Barnabas gets there, being a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, he sees God's blessing and grace on this church and he just loves it. But not everybody back in Jerusalem does. In fact, we find out in another place in Acts 15 that Jerusalem calls them back and says, hey, we got to have a conference to talk over what y'all are doing there, telling people they don't have to be circumcised to follow Jesus. you got to stop this right now. Tell people they have to follow all the ways of Moses, or they they got to do every Jewish ritual, or they can't be baptized. The disagreement leads to this huge conference you can read about in Acts 15, at which point... Peter stands up and he says, We believe it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. And then he added, It's my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, they just need to follow Jesus. And that's a message that changed the world. And I know it changed it for most people in this room because you would not know if it had not changed. And nobody, nobody ever spread that news like the guy named Saul that we hear about who eventually becomes Paul. Because Paul knew nobody needed grace as much as Paul did. I know from talking to people in our church that a lot of people in our church have done things in their past that they're not too proud of, but I don't know what's on your resume that would top, I used to kill Christians. But that's on Paul's resume. Paul knew that if the grace of Jesus could save him, that grace could save anybody. And everybody needed to know. So later, at the end of his life, Paul would write to his young apprentice and he would say, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying, and everybody ought to accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. 
There are only two people in the world that have known me since the very first breath I took. It's my two older sisters. They know how I started. They know the life I've led. They know how I was raised. They know how incredibly obstinate I was. They know how rebellious I was. They know how I broke the heart of everybody who loved me. One of my sisters has been to Community Christian quite a few times. And on one visit after seeing you, not me, after seeing you, people from great backgrounds who obviously knew Jesus from a long time ago and people who culturally they could tell, she could tell, have only known Jesus for a little while and have screwed up in ways that most of our culture would not find acceptable. She said to me, Ed, God used you to create a church for people just like you. And I smiled because I know Paul was wrong. I'm the worst of sinners. God has had mercy on me to be a prime example of his great patience, even with the worst of sinners. Listen, church, the idea has to be deep, deep, deep in us that the church believes that no matter what you've done or no matter where you've gone, that God, whatever you've been separated from him or from your community or from other people or even from yourself, discipleship to Jesus is the solution. It can solve all those problems, even when you know you are the worst. When you think you've gone too far and you've done too much and you become someone that you hate, God can redeem your life. And he can create a trophy of his grace from your life. Do you know the name Antonio Stradivarius? 400 years ago, he made violins that are currently the most desired violins in the world. But at the time, Stradivarius was a very poor man who could not even afford to buy wood. So instead of purchasing the materials he needed, Stradivarius would go down to the harbor and collect discarded driftwood from the sea. What he didn't know was that the microbes in the water ate the infrastructure of the wood and in so doing created these chambers that allowed the music to resonate in extraordinary ways and has made a Stradivarius violin in our day worth between eight and 20 million dollars. See, this is what Jesus does. He takes the parts of us that no one wants, that often we don't want, the broken and the ruined and the wicked, and as we follow him, Jesus makes our lives sing. This is why we have to remember that discipleship to Jesus can save anyone. And more than that, we have to remember that through the church, God puts this on display. It was such a radical idea that Christians would share the gospel across ethnic lines. Antioch was the first place it happened. And Antioch was a very ethnically bigoted city. It was a very segregated city with each race having its own part of town they stayed in. And along comes this group of people and they started crossing racial boundaries. They started meeting together as family regularly. There was no other place in Greco-Roman culture where this happened. And it was here that believers were given a label no one had ever used before. They had no other way to classify a group of people who loved and cared for people so openly and inclusively. And so it was in Antioch that they were first called Christians, Christ's people. 
It was the only way to describe this kind of love. They belong to Christ. From membership all the way to leadership, the church in Antioch modeled a reconciliation among people that became evidence to the reconciliation with God. And this is the message God wanted to get out. It's why he chose Antioch, not Jerusalem, but Antioch to be the church that would send out missionaries because that's the church he wanted in all the world. And it's significant that Paul goes out from Antioch because in the New Testament, we never see Paul start a mono-ethnic church, which would have been so much easier because a multi-ethnic church is messy. In fact, the reason we have so many letters in the New Testament from Paul is primarily he is addressing how to keep multi-ethnic people united in love because it's difficult and messy. But Paul understood if you're going to teach everyone to obey everything Jesus commanded, then you're going to have to help people believe that everyone can hear the good news. Good news that only makes you right with God, but not people, is not the good news of Jesus. It's incomplete. And it was this reconciliation on display in the church that proved this. Look at what Paul says to the multi-ethnic church in Ephesus. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Wouldn't it have been easier if Paul had said, all you people that look the same and talk the same and like the same things, you go to one house for church and all the rest of you can go to this house for church. It may have been easier, but it would not have been the church of Jesus Christ because the grace of Jesus makes all walls come down when the cross is lifted up. The light of the world that Jesus puts on a lampstand is not separate but equal. God hates separate but equal. And that's why Jesus is building a church that models what only the Spirit of God can produce in the world. Jesus needs a church on mission. He needs a church that will live out good news and display it like a, a light put on a stand and that will share the good news. He needs that for it to get out. And so does our world desperately need it. And that's one reason that the church, you and I, we're absolutely essential to God. It's not about drawing a crowd. It's not about getting more people. After all, we only gather together to scatter. We come together and we put the, the kingdom of God on display when we're together. And so we commit to this rhythm of gathering and encouraging and scattering to do the mission because we know if we can get the grace of God right in the church, if we can unify right in the church, if we can get communion with each other across all kinds of divisions in spite of ethnic, political, and all kinds of other differences, if we can come together, if we can get that right, it helps Jesus get outside the church. And over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to talk to you about more about what that looks like. To only gather in the name of Jesus, but to scatter in our communities where God has divinely placed you. But for today, here's what I want you to consider. Are you committed to this mission? And are 
you committed to doing this mission with the church. Which means, are you committed to any people in the church that they know they can count on you? That you are for them and you are with them. That you will do life with them and you'll do ministry with them. If you're new to our church and you've only been checking it out, have you done first steps yet? If you feel God calling you toward a step beyond just sitting in the service and consuming content and into community, I encourage you to go to the next step today. It's right out those doors. I'll be there. There'll be a team there to talk to you about that. I'd love to help you get more connected. If you've been coming for a while and you, you used to serve, you used to be in small group, and for whatever reason your group blew up or you don't like anybody in that group, come and talk to us. I mean, honestly, some of y'all are hard to like. I mean, let's be clear. I can be hard to like. You know that. I mean, we don't have to act like that's not true. We have to learn to love each other in spite of that, don't we? We have to move toward each other. Because here's the truth. We don't know what God will do through our church, but we know that His Spirit is always leading us toward each other because we are His body. And so I want to give you some time to talk to God about this. And while you're doing it, we're going to receive the meal of communion. You were given elements when you came in. If you didn't get any, they're right out these doors on the table uh, right outside that door. You can grab some and participate with us. If you're new around here and you don't believe what we believe and you don't feel comfortable doing that, just let this pass. But if you're a believer, would you use this time particularly not just to do what believers have a tendency to do, which is to thank God for His sacrifice and how He's made you right with Him? Will you give thanks to God that He placed you in His family and you're a beloved son or daughter of the of the Father in His body to do work together. Maybe have a conversation with God about what your next step is. Because as we move forward, whatever God has in store for us in the future, we need all of us together. And not joined by a cause or a goal that we can accomplish, joined together by the love of Jesus shown to us on the cross. So I'm going to give you some time of quiet that you have a chance to remember him, remember the body, give thanks for the body, maybe thanks particularly for someone that means a lot to you. And then our band's going to come and lead us in a song that reminds us that we're not left alone to accomplish this mission, that our God is with us and he's standing with us and he's fighting with us. So let's receive communion together and then we'll sing together.